This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hi, I'm Steve Sharetta, Senior Managing Editor at Knowledge at Wharton, and I'd like to welcome Wharton Management Professor John Paul McDuffie, who's also Director of Wharton's Program on Vehicle and Mobility Innovation at the school's Mac Institute for Innovative Management. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, John Paul is going to discuss the safety of autonomous vehicles, uh, which is of special interest now following that fatal accident. A lot of people will remember back in March in Arizona uh, where, where a pedestrian was struck by a self-driving car operated by Uber and maybe want to talk about the details of that. But you've done a lot of research on these issues, and um, everyone sort of agrees that too many people are killed by human drivers. No, no, uh, no worries about that. But uh, the self-driving cars can promise to one day be safer than that. And although there's differing opinions about how much more work needs to be done and how long that will take to make them truly safe, it still is a very interesting, promising technology. So, um, absolutely. But one immediate question is: How can the public know? when technology advances are far enough along to allow experimental driving on public highways, for example, or put another way, as you did in your your paper for uh, the public uh, policy initiative, quote, what risks are we willing to accept to advance technology, unquote, as as you said in your paper, titled The Policy Trajectories of Autonomous Vehicles. So I I think that's my question is, like, how should we be thinking about this? What are the... what are the parameters we should be taking into consideration? Yeah. Uh, I always start with one fundamental fact about the automobile and the automotive industry, which I think affects uh, a huge number of things about how that industry is organized and how it is part of our lives. Uh, you know, automobiles are, are big, heavy fast-moving, dangerous objects that operate entirely in public space. There's hardly another product uh, that's not also a transportation product that doesn't, you know, that fits into that category. And so society in the form of laws and regulations has wanted to ensure the safety of the automobile pretty much ever since the industry was organized. And when you look around the world, you know, as uh, GDP rises to a level where people start to buy cars – Pretty soon after that, all these countries put in similar kinds of laws, at least about safety, not always about emissions and things like that. So, you know, when an iPod or an iPad or an iPhone uh, misfunctions, it's not dangerous typically, uh, and it affects the private user but not the public in a more general sense, and cars are just fundamentally different in that regard. So... You know, I think a, a role for society in regulating these vehicles is a- appropriate. It continues what we've always done, and it doesn't answer the question of how best to do it, but I think that's a, a, a kind of a starting point for sure. Uh, look, the promise of this technology is huge. Uh, you're right, and I think we have a statistic in the policy brief that in the U.S. in 2016, close to 37, 38,000 uh, deaths from automobile accidents. Which is up substantially. And that's actually up. Yeah, if you look at the post-war, post-World War II trend on deaths, it fell pretty steadily with a few um, substantial, you know, 
bigger improvements when seatbelts came in, when airbags came in, et cetera. Uh, 2014 to 2016 saw a 5% jump, which is a really, when you look at the data graphed, it's like a surprising jump up after a long tapering down and pretty much everybody I mean, pretty much the... everybody agrees it's distracted driving yeah it's people wow. it's people on their phones and even though you know the auto companies have been working hard to make sure you can not actually look at your phone screen but you've got bluetooth or other kinds of things people are clearly doing it all you got to do when i walk to work every day and you do too and stand at corners and watch a lot of cars t- taking a right turn or a left turn mm-hmm. see how many people are on their phones mm-hmm. um it's a surprisingly high number so you know we need to help this technology advance because the public health consequences alone are huge. Um, in the process, we want to be careful during the testing phase to make sure we're not introducing new, unreasonable dangers in the process. So one of the things you, you point out in the paper is, when, in talking about how we should think about this, is that um, the, the areas that one needs to look at are technological, safety, ethical issues uh, for car makers, tech companies, legislators, and regulators. So those are kind of like key players or key pieces on the keyboard. And you, yes. you, you address most of those things in the paper, which I think is interesting. It really breaks it down in a way that makes it um, easy to understand. Uh, so then you go on to talk about federal versus state regulations in the paper. And, um, and then you talk about the five levels of autonomy, which is which is like sort of, you know, Table stakes for understanding uh, self-driving yes. cars, right? Yes. If you want to understand what's going on, it's like, okay. And and what's interesting is like almost everybody agrees that these should be the five stages, right, to talk about. So maybe just give us like a brief review of what those stages are. Sure. Um, so these levels of autonomy come from the Society of Automotive Engineers. It uh, was first a U.S. and it's now a international organization. Um, they've tried to get out in front of having some definitions And I would say that regulators, when you see NHTSA, the U.S. uh, agency that governs car safety, they use the SAE categories. The auto companies use it. You know, whether people always use the terms precisely or whether we can even precisely define each level is it's, it's a moving game, right, with a lot of new technology. But I can certainly set out the parameters. Uh, So let's start off with level zero being no automation at all. Level one automation is something like simple cruise control that most of us have seen in cars for a very long time. Um, So it has to be set by a human and has to be monitored closely. You know, you put your foot on the brake and the cruise control stops. Um, Very basic technology. And so... If, if you have somebody saying uh, almost no cars are automated, well, you'd have to say, well, if you're talking level one, then a lot of cars are. Level two is more advanced features of what is sometimes called automated driver assist systems. ADAS is an acronym some people may have seen. So many of the features in new cars now, whether it's a beep if you drift in terms of the lane, something, <laughs> yeah, something that affects the follow distance between you and the car in front. There's even some technologies that may soon be mandated, at least in the U.S., to, for braking when somebody jams on the brakes in front of you to jump in and assist in that kind of situation. Um, that's level two. So that's kind of advanced. Still, the human driver is fully responsible but is getting help from these kinds of things. 
Um, let me jump to the other extreme. Level five is probably the most utopian, and it's sort of there to define the 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 imaginable future, but the we can't say when future, and that's. Each vehicle is completely self-driving in all situations at all times. There's probably not a single control in the vehicle where a human could do anything at all. So whether you're in approaching the Arctic Circle or you're um, driving through a field to get to a family picnic and there's no maps and there's no landmarks, um, it would be able to handle all those situations. Okay, in between, we've got level three, level four. This is a really interesting debate, which I uh, talk about a little bit in the policy brief. For level three, the idea is the automated system does most of the work, but the human driver has to be ready at any time to jump in and take control. So it's kind of saying, ah, some things are really tough. We want the human driver to make the judgment call, but we can handle most everything else. Am, am, I, am I right to say it failed the first test? <laughs> With the Wasn't that the case in the Uber crash? Well, the Uber crash was absolutely a level three situation, and then the Tesla fatal accident that followed – uh, which was an Apple engineer, actually, uh, same thing. So you've got a human who supposedly knows that he's in charge and or she's in charge and then fails to act. And in both of those fatal crashes, the automated systems also failed to act. There was no evidence of brakes being applied by either the human or the, or the, or the vehicle. Um, can say a little bit more about those accidents in a moment. But, uh, you know, the kinds of technologies that the believers in level three would have us focus on are um, things that may track eye motion. And so if it looks like you're drifting asleep or you're getting distracted, it would beep or in an extreme version even force you to take control again. You can imagine flashing lights. You can imagine beeps. You can imagine vibrations in the seat. Um, all these are the kinds of things that the technologists want to use to grab your attention and bring it bring it back. I always think of an interview I had with a guy who runs the Stanford lab who works on these things, and he said um, basically, you know, what if you're deep in thought about something? Uh, and he he gave an example that he'd been helping his his son with some book about building medieval cathedrals. And so your mind is like not just distracted from driving. Your mind is in 14th century France. And all of a sudden this beeping happens and you have to snap back to attention, comprehend the situation and do the smart, proper driving thing. And by the way, if we're doing less actual driving, our driving skills are probably deteriorating. Um, what are the odds that you're going to make the right choices very often? And that's what the level three skeptics say. Google, now known as Waymo for their self-driving uh, subsidiary, has gone as far as to say they believe level three is an infeasible engineering uh, solution. So they've got smart engineers there saying impossible can't be done. Um, because of humans. Because of, yeah, well, and because, yes, of the limitations of our attention and consciousness right. to be triggered. Um, Audi, on the other hand, has just released the A8, which is their most advanced uh, sedan, and they're announcing a level three option. They're calling it the first level three vehicle. They can't introduce that option because at the moment there's not a single place in the world where it's legal. They first said they were going to roll it out in Australia. I figured, you know, out in the wilds of Australia where there's hardly any people, they thought they could get away with it, but Australia hasn't approved it yet either. So anyway, but that shows you that there's some folks and some strategies that are premised on level three is impossible and there's others and i think it's probably mostly the car companies with confident engineers that are saying no we did level one we did level two we're gonna 
by God, we're going to be able to do level three and eventually we'll get to four and five. And, um, and we'll have to see. But when these accidents happen under level three conditions, it certainly gives you pause. Mm -hmm. um, what would be um, a sensible way to protect the public? What kinds of rules, regulations, and at what level? So there's, you know, if you look at what we have now for, there's federal standards for safety in cars. You have to have certain things, brakes have to function a certain way, whatever it might be. But then when you get to the state level, well, people have different speed limits on different roads and, and different licensing requirements, different inspection requirements for their cars and so forth. Uh, and same for municipalities. And you, and you talk about the three different levels. So, so um, what, what do you think or what does the paper say would, would, would make sense for, for these kinds of things? Or is this still all being debated and, and um, not agreed to very much? Yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll give you a quick snapshot. You know, at first it was states taking action to decide whether or not to regulate these tests. And certain states approved these tests. Certain states turned it down, at least at the state legislative level. Um, apparently the general presumption with new technologies if, is that if it's not specifically prohibited, it's kind of allowed until somebody decides it's enough of a problem to try to ban it. So I don't think any of the early testing that happened without laws was very risky from a legal point of view. But now, of course, it's a lot further along. The current federal legis legislation, uh, there was a House bill and a Senate bill. The House bill passed unanimously really fast with hardly any debate. And now uh, the, that bill is kind of stuck in the Senate. But what the House bill basically said is we think this is so important that we want to encourage testing uh, as much as possible. So we're going to prohibit the states from setting their own rules. We're going to have the, you know, the preemptive federal law that, and then in terms of the federal law, they basically said, we're not going to have any rules. In fact, the, the FMVSS, the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard, which every single car on the road is required to meet, they basically said, you companies doing these tests, you're exempted from those. You can exempt 25,000 test vehicles a year. And then after three years, that number rises to 100,000. At the moment, there's 24 companies that have registered in the state of California to do testing. So 24 times 100,000 is a decent number of vehicles to be entirely exempted from this uh, federal FMVSS. So that's where there's some pushback. It's kind of like, have we gone too far, too laissez-faire to say, you know, you don't need to have any, any controls at all. I don't think these companies would deliberately do things that were highly unsafe. What somebody from a company said to me is, you know, look, you have to meet laws for how you fasten car seats in the back seat of a regular vehicle. We're not going to be putting car seats into these test vehicles anytime soon. And so it makes sense that we shouldn't have to worry about that when we're doing our test vehicles. You know, anyway, so you, you get a sense of the, the debate over that. I think that because it's stuck in the Senate, it's stuck a little bit over this, whether they, you know, gave the companies too much leeway in terms of safety. So my guess is whatever eventual bill gets um, passed and signed will have more safety standards and they'll be consistent um, across the U.S. And look, for any company that's trying to figure out what to do with the new technology, they want to roll it out different places, a consistent standard across all states makes a lot of sense. Um, 
my colleague Sarah Light, who's in legal studies here, has written a lot about the advantages of uh, of federalism, or you know, the kind of principle out of our history that having the states free to experiment with different kinds of policies is a healthy thing for. Uh, you know, the way the U.S. Uh, operates and, and learns effective policy. And I, I tend to agree with her. I don't know if safety is the best place for that, but there may be room for states, uh, hopefully, to be encouraged to allow, and cities, to allow a lot of different kinds of tests. Um, so what safety equipment is in the vehicle, that's, you know, the first thing. And then there's also the conditions under which you allow the testing, Um People will start to hear this term geofencing, which is a term that means you put some kind of barrier that fences off the autonomous vehicles from other vehicles. And you could imagine sections of interstate highway where they would allow self-driving trucks or other kinds of new trucking technologies to be applied that would end Mm -hmm. and require human drivers to resume control. You could imagine cities that might dedicate certain roadways to allowing these tests. I've heard an interesting idea in Japan from a a colleague where they have a lot of elderly people living in remote rural villages who have real problems with transportation. You know, they rely on a bus that comes a couple times a day, and that's the only way they can get places for whether it's healthcare appointments or other things. There are some proposals to dedicate certain roads, certain backcountry roads to only uh, having these self-driving vehicles that could be used exclusively for bringing people in emergencies or other routine situations um, to get care. So geofencing is another way to deal with the safety challenge. And I'm guessing there, letting states and cities come up with different forms of that is great because that's how we'll learn and advance both the technology and the policy. There's also, um, when it comes to safety, there's a couple camps. I think one is the idea that all the cars have to be able to communicate with each other so they know where each other are and that that will greatly enhance safety. Um, but, of course, that's a, that's, a big, uh, that's a big data problem. <laughs> that's a big technology problem. And why don't you talk about that way and the, and the other method that would ensure some kind of safety where cars are, I guess, using laser beams or some other form of technology to see where where exactly the road is and where yeah. obstacles are and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, and I think this is a really um, another interesting part of the, the history. If you talk to anybody who's been involved in the field of transportation, transportation planning, they'll throw out concepts like intelligent highways, uh, intelligent transportation systems. The idea of making infrastructure smart having vehicles communicate with each other all to facilitate maybe self-driving, maybe, you know, better ways of handling congestion, cars being able to travel closer together. Those ideas have been around for a long time. There have been various small demonstration projects, but it's never really taken off. Well, there's two big barriers um, to that approach taking off. When you want vehicles to communicate with each other, uh, First of all, you got to get that technology into all the vehicles if you want it to be effective. So you can start installing it in new vehicles, but you've got a massive number of, of used, actively used vehicles on the road. Um, the other is you have to agree on a standard. And, you know, standard setting has been a complicated process, whether it's in telecom or whether it's in the computer world. 
and it's no less complicated, maybe more complicated in the world of cars. So uh, at the moment, there is a short-range Wi-Fi uh, standard called um, DSRC, DSRC, which is dedicated short-range communication. Um, the federal government thinks that this technology is ready and could be installed in vehicles, and they could start having at least some ability to communicate with each other. But most folks I talk to in the auto industry say that technology is not even close to adequate to handle the amount of data that's actually going to be needed for either safety, but there's other things that, you know, we're going to have internet connections to our cars, we're going to have services and various things that we're consulting. The auto companies are saying, and the tech companies, um, 5G. So 5G is the next standard up in the telecom world. It isn't out yet. Um, we don't know when it will be out. And dedicating some of the 5G spectrum to automotive purposes is something that people say can be done, but that has to be worked out too. So there's a lot of problems of interoperability, installing the technology, et cetera, for the vehicle-to-vehicle piece. Now, what about smart infrastructure? Why Putting wires in bridges, putting sensors in roadways, all of that to let us detect decay in roadways, but also congestion and other kinds of problems. Um, we are way behind in the U.S. in investing in basic infrastructure, as everybody knows. So whether that's fixing potholes or repairing highway roadways or crumbling bridges, um, the money for infrastructure has always come from governments. Government budgets have been strapped to do the kind of massive investment you'd need to have smart infrastructure everywhere you'd want to use this stuff is uh, – I don't know anybody who sees it as politically feasible in the U.S. or, or anywhere else. Uh, okay, so then into this, you might say, you know, uh, time with people – talking about promising technologies and some future of self-driving cars but getting stuck on these barriers, you have DARPA, which is the uh, part of the Defense Department that experiments with new technologies. They hold these challenges for self-driving cars to compete. Uh, university teams enter working with car companies, working with tech companies. Uh, I think a team from Carnegie Mellon working with GM and Google won the first one. But the kind of breakthrough, and I don't know who to credit it to, um, was to say, hey, let's put $300,000 or $500,000 worth of cool hardware on a car. Let's add some really smart driving algorithm software. By the way, this happened in deserts and things like that where there were no pedestrians. And let's add 3D mapping, so like really very fine-grained mapping of a sort that Google was already in a position to do. And we don't have to communicate with anything. We don't have to communicate with the other car. We don't have to communicate with the surroundings. We can really be fully autonomous. Like each vehicle is its own completely, uh, you know, capable cell of taking in the environment for driving purposes. And on that basis, all the advances we've seen in the last five years have happened. It's all been that kind of each vehicle is self-sufficient. And... Um, so I'll just conclude and then see where you want to go next by saying there's some people at Penn Engineering who I really uh, trust on this topic. They say, look, we're going to move very quickly for quite a while in uh, being able to automate driving situations with this approach, 
each vehicle completely self-sufficient. Then we're going to get to the really hard stuff. And when we get to the really hard stuff, we're going to be stuck because then we'll have to do vehicle-to-vehicle or vehicle-to-infrastructure. And if we haven't made any progress on either of those, it's going to be kind of like the brakes get slammed on the whole thing until we solve that. So that's pretty much where I am on the, the issue, too. Uh, you raised that interesting question of in- infrastructure, no money being around. You can't think of anyone who thinks that the government's going to provide the kind of money that might be needed. So how would that obstacle be overcome? Well, you know, uh, it, it depends a little on the pace of diffusion you uh, either expect or or think is wise. If we think of a fairly long period of progressively ambitious experiments that are done in different parts of the country, you know, Phoenix area has been a place where Waymo but also Uber have done a lot of their tests. Yes, the city government and the state government said come down and we'll approve it, but you've also got flat suburban streets, dry. <laughs> wide, dry, never fog, hardly ever rain. And those are just really easy driving conditions um, to run these kinds of algorithms through their paces. You know, Michigan has, at Ann Arbor, at the University of Michigan, they had a space, they took over a former industrial space where they put in a, a driving course where a lot of things can be tested. And then the state of Michigan created, along with GM and I think Ford, a, a former assembly plant site is now being made into an even bigger and more sophisticated testing ground. Well, in Michigan, they'll be able to do winter wet weather testing, rain, fog, all those kinds of things, and it'll be on a real test course that's off the roads and, and safe. So imagine that multiply that by a thousand different experiments going on all over the U.S., some in cities, some in towns, and, um, you know, the infrastructure piece of any of those might be rather small, and it might not be that hard to persuade a city or a state to do it for that purpose. And maybe from that we learn what's most effective, and then we know what the funding challenge might be to build it up from there. What else do we need to know about these issues that we haven't talked about here? I'm sure there's plenty, but maybe just a, a one or two major points. Yeah. Well, one thing I talk about in the policy brief is the insurance challenge. Mm -hmm. So, you know, insurance is now based on figuring out the profile of the driver and underwriting the characteristics of the driver. So if there's no driver, at the moment, we don't have an insurance model. Uh, I've had the chance through uh, some exec ed teaching here to meet with insurance company execs and, and consultants who work with them. And, you know, they're, they're, Either they're complacent because they say this will happen, you know, after I'm retired or they're scared because this completely undermines their business model. But if you dig down, uh, they would say a couple things. First, they would say, look, we can figure out new underwriting models. Maybe we underwrite a trip. So it's a particular vehicle going a particular route at a particular kind of day, time of day. Maybe it's the the Waymo operating system versus the, who knows, the Apple operating system, and those have different characteristics. Each trip is micro-insured, and your insurance bill is an aggregation of all those things. They're pretty sure they could figure out how to do that. Uh, What they say is, we need the data from that trip. And at the moment, everybody wants the data. The data are incredibly valuable for all kinds of purposes. And there's no regulatory framework for that. 
So if they had to buy it, it would make their products impossibly expensive. Insurance is in the public interest. So I see a possible scenario in which the government says, out of the data generated by these self-driving cars, certain generic trip characteristic stuff has to be shared for free with insurance companies. I mean, that to me would be a, a logical kind of extension of public policy to make sure we have a functioning insurance system. I don't think it would unfairly advantage the insurance companies. I don't think it would unfairly penalize them. So that's a really interesting issue. Control of the data in general is going to be a really interesting issue. Every service that wants to access the customers in cars who now have a lot of time on their hands, right, if they're not driving, uh, they want the data. Uh, who's actually going to be able to monetize the data? The tech companies have proven that they're really quite good at that. And I think they're trying to put themselves in a controlling position around that. Um, the car companies have never been very good at that kind of thing, but they're terrified about having the tech companies control it. When you hear about things breaking down, you know, Ford and Google tried to work out a, a deal and it fell apart. Apple and Volkswagen, no, I'm sorry, Apple and BMW and Apple and uh, Mercedes-Benz tried to work out some deals. It broke down. I haven't seen the details, but it's probably over the data as much as anything, like who's really going to control mm -hmm. uh, what happens with the data and therefore the the sort of revenues, margins, profits that come from that, knowledge of customers, et cetera. And it's really interesting because if we had a clearinghouse for that data, who would run it? I don't know. A nonprofit, the government, um, that would allow uh, safety advancements to progress more quickly. So I, I've read some things that say, for example, well, the, the, the place that's really in a position to pull ahead on this is China because, A, they have a lot of people, so they're going to have a lot, a lot of data. But the government's in a position with a command and control order to say, okay, everyone has to share their data and they will control it and, they, and they'll be able to use it and uh, be able to make advances more quickly. Have you thought about that or is that, is that out there in the world as an idea? Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, you know, probably the the first issue that's getting a lot of attention about China, uh, because it probably will happen sooner, is electric vehicles. So again, with the government uh, pushing its own domestic makers to get into electric vehicles, uh, mandating that foreign automakers make electric vehicles, and maybe most importantly, being willing to forward invest into charging infrastructure, which again, we've had this chicken and egg problem with charging infrastructure everywhere. And, you know, if the central government in China says, hey, we're going to do it, then you induce demand by having the charging infrastructure available. But some of those same attributes could really help China in this area as well. And they've, they've certainly identified this as a place for them to, you know, zoom ahead and be known as an a innovation leader. There's a company called Baidu, which is mostly a tech company, and they've introduced a uh, open source software called Apollo for self-driving. And they basically say, look, anybody can download this software and use it as the starting kernel for your own software. You don't have to share the new software you write, but we do ask you to give us any data from driving tests of what software you use. And then we're going to make that a a resource for everybody who's participating in the open source project so everybody can see those data. So it's quite, uh, uh, you know, it's a smart idea to, you know, wrap themselves in open source, which is a, you know, a beloved 
Silicon Valley and high-tech kind of concept uh, that seems to be noble and about making the world better and not about profits. And it's also smart to suggest that there are ways for smaller players to get access to a big pool of data for you know, using machine learning to improve their algorithms and all sorts of other stuff rather than have this be completely dominated by the big guys. So we'll see. Um, you know, for one of the things I've been doing um, with uh, Good Judgment uh, Incorporated, which is a, t- a forecasting um, organization that Phil Tetlock of Wharton helped set up, we've been doing some technology forecasting on things affecting mobility. And uh, we had forecasters forecast, you know, predicting how many downloads of this kernel stuff from Baidu would be used. Um, and, uh, you know, there are signs that a lot of engineering and computer science schools are like assigning it to students as a project. So you get spurts at the beginning of semesters. Um, but anyway, it seems to be um, moving pretty quickly. We don't see yet what the products are from that, but it's a, it's a cool idea. What are you going to look at next in this area? Um, well, I, I think seeing what the regulatory response is to some of these recent fatal accidents and, and maybe more importantly, what's really discovered about the reasons for them, uh, is pretty important. Take the Uber accident, right? Which we started talking about. You've got a pedestrian emerging from the shadows, uh, at dusk in a place where pedestrians should not be with a bicycle, and the Uber vehicle didn't, and the driver and the algorithms didn't spot it. The driver, we now know from phone records, was uh, watching an episode of The Voice um, on her phone and looking down uh, quite a lot at it, so the driver was distracted. Uber, though, had also decided to turn off some of the safety systems in the Volvo car, some automatic braking things because they wanted to test their own braking algorithms. That suggests maybe not a wise um, kind of compromise. Also, Uber only had one LiDAR unit, which is that laser-based, very valuable technology. They had one on the top. Most Waymo cars have six. They have, you know, the sides and the front and the back as well as the top. So should the Uber cars have been allowed to be out there with only one LiDAR unit when others... Tesla's saying we don't want to use LiDAR at all. It's too too expensive. So I think out of these, um, you know, the fatal accidents get the most attention. The state of California now requires two things. Any accident has to be reported out of the test. And any time that a human test driver has to retake control from the algorithms, mm-hmm. that has to be reported as well. These, I think, are smart um, – things that regulators are doing to help us learn about this process of testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how much, I don't think it's that hard for the companies to do it. If they think that government shouldn't be involved at all, they're probably grumbling about it. But I think it's a smart way for us to get more data and learn what's going on. Well, thanks for coming in and chatting with us about this uh, topic of which there will be a lot more to learn about in the future. I'm there sure. will be a lot more coming for sure. So if if you like what you hear and want to hear more, you can visit our website for more knowledge at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thanks again for coming in. Sure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 